welcome back to From My Mom's Basement, the podcast recorded directly from my mom's basement. I'm your host, David Chamberlain, and this is episode 13 of the podcast entitled Killing the Bear. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy it. This is the story of how I shot a bear dead in Alaska. It's a true story, but it's also a secret one. You see, I made a deal with Dean Landry that I would tell everyone he killed the bear. So this account is top secret, private, confidential, and you should consider yourself lucky that you get to hear it. However, that all being said, this is the actual way things went down. None of this story is pretend or make-believe. Dean might try to tell you that he was the one who killed it, but that simply isn't true. This is, by all accounts, a 100% factual retelling of the events that occurred up in that unforgiving northern territory of Alaska. So, listen close. Dean Landry wanted to go up to the middle of nowhere and hunt some big, taxidermy-worthy animals, and he needed a couple pals to go along with him. It was going to be one of those real-deal hunts with all of the trappings. No expense would be spared. I told Dean I would go with him as long as I didn't have to pay for a damn thing. He obliged my request. He said, I, I just can't go alone. If, if you come up there with me, yeah, I'll, I'll pay your way. I'll, I'll pay for everything. I'll pay for the guns, the, the bullets, the, the licenses, the food, the gear, the flights, the hotel, the hookers, everything. I think he was kidding about the hooker part, but with Dean, you can never be too sure. He was married in a real flimsy kind of a way, you know? I think his wife had been sleeping with her therapist or something for like the past half decade. There wasn't any real love between them, and I expect that crappy marriage was half the reason Dean wanted to fly up to the end of the world and fill some unsuspecting animal with lead. The hunting party would consist of Dean Landry, Parker Weston, who was a friend of Dean's I didn't know, and myself. A hired guide would take us through the bush until we got what we were looking for or ran out of food and supplies. We all met up the night before our departure at Dean's house. It was supposed to be some kind of briefing meeting where we'd discuss tactics and procedures and safety and yada yada yada, but it ended up being like most things, a reason to get drunk. I remember that night the same way I remember the night before my first day of school, with overpowering feelings of despair and confusion and the same question popping into my head, why am I doing this? We sat in the dining room at Dean's house, Dean had one of those McMansions with a separate dining room and all that, and looked over our supplies. Parker sat across the table from me nursing a beer and looking at his ESPN app on his phone. He was one of those sporty guys, you know the type, the kind of guys who wear khaki cargo shorts and Under Armour polo shirts and make their sons cry at Little League football games. Parker was a pretty quiet guy. Other than our brief introductions, I don't think we said a word to each other. Dean was the glue, the ringleader. We all listened to Dean. Okay, Dean said, standing over his dining table like a military tactician. We'll we'll get into the hotel around 9.30 p.m. Alaska time. Then, bright and early the next morning, we'll, we'll meet Henriksen, who will take us into the bush. I remember Dean's wife walked in the dining room as he was standing over us, describing the parameters of our hunt. She was wearing a red cocktail dress, which covered her chest in a very vague, haphazard kind of way. Like a picket fence around a prison, there wasn't a lot of material to hold back what was trying to burst out. Her long hair was glistening with some kind of hair product, and it fell in tight curls around her shoulders. Her heels clacked against the hardwood as she entered the room. 
Dean had once been an attractive man, sure, but since their marriage, the discrepancy between Dean's looks and his wife's had only grown to a point where an unassuming stranger might believe Dean was his wife's father. Poor Dean was beginning to carry himself like an old man, while his wife still had all of the energy and vibrancy of a woman in her twenties. Hi, Parker. Hi, Lewis, she said in her soft voice as she entered the room. Parker and I nodded nervously. I hope you guys have fun on your trip. She turned to Dean, her face losing all of its cordialness. Dean, I'm going out. Don't expect to see me before you leave. Oh, okay, Dean said, keeping his eyes on the gear spread out across the table. He was unable to even look in her direction. See, see you in a couple weeks. Whatever, she said, turning and clicking and clacking out of the dining room. The sound of her heels echoed across the McMansion, slowly fading to silence. Then there was the sound of a door opening and closing, and then the bright, angry sound of a sports car's engine revving. The engine roared to full throttle and then faded away down the road, leaving us all sitting in awkward silence. Parker was going to say something, but he decided against it and took a long sip from his beer. All three of us stared at the gear in front of us, the ammo and paracord and utility knives and compasses, and said nothing. We were silently waiting for the awkwardness of their interaction to fade away, as if it was some kind of nauseous fume that needed to die down before we could breathe again. It was Dean who broke the silence. I, I think I'm going to find a nice, secluded spot up in the bush and never come back. When we landed in Anchorage, it was dark, cold and dark. It was an old kind of dark. You could tell the sky had been void of light for a long time. None of us spoke much. We clunked down the stairs from the airplane and braved the loud, screeching airport tarmac. Wind cut into my clothes and tore through my bones. It only took 30 seconds of being in Alaska to realize I didn't bring warm enough clothes. Now that's a pretty disheartening revelation to have before you go marching into the great white north. I started to regret going hunting with Dean and Parker the second my teeth started to chatter, which was about a minute after we stepped out of the plane. We walked with our duffel bags slung over our shoulders until we came to the terminal where we met Henriksen, our guide. He was everything you could possibly imagine. He was the kind of man every man wants to be. He was rugged and stoic and said little, but what he did say was important, even profound. He had a thick black beard and short cropped hair and eyes that were almost silver. He was the incarnation of every woodsman, every mountain man, every wild and rustic man humanity has ever created. I was happy to have him as a guide. Hello, gentlemen, he said in a low, perfunctory tone. Welcome to Alaska. Follow me. Parker wasn't impressed with Henriksen. This guy thinks he's Rambo, Parker said under his breath. He's probably from Venice Beach or something. We piled into Henriksen's Jeep. Dean took shotgun while Parker and I were stuffed in the back with the gear and the rest of the luggage. It was very quiet. No one was speaking as we rumbled into the short, squat buildings of Anchorage. The lights of the city were orange and wreathed in mist, haloed by the fog that rolled in from the sea. It was a sad place, an outpost planted in the middle of inhospitable lands, surrounded on all sides by the apathetic forces of nature whose will was much greater than that of man's. You got the sense that the entire city could be frozen or buried under the sea or swallowed by the forest at any moment. The power of nature was apparent here, forcing itself to be recognized. When we got to the hotel, Henriksen stayed in the car. 
I'll be here at 10.30 tomorrow morning, he said. Call whoever you need to tonight. We won't have service where we're going. Once we had our things, he nodded to us and drove away. What a prick, Parker said. What a cocky little prick. Come on, Dean said. It's freezing out here. I I picked this place because it has a full bar. Let's check in and get good and drunk tonight, shall we? Parker and I nodded, and we marched into the hotel. The hotel was fashioned in an old frontier-like style. The walls of the lobby were made of dark logs, with black and white photos of old Yukon gold rushers hung on them. A truly menacing fire rumbled and cracked in a stone fireplace in the center of the lobby. There were the smells of lumber and liquor. A chandelier crafted from the antlers and bone of some beastly animal hung low from the ceiling. The lights were dim and warm. Like most hotels and resorts of this fashion, the main goal of the thematic decoration is to make you think you are experiencing a piece of history. You aren't just getting a warm bed and a hot shower, you are getting a history lesson, a glimpse of the past. The scary men in the ancient photos on the walls are trying to say, Hey bub, this ain't no ordinary hotel. This is where real men stay. This is where guys like us used to hoot and holler and gamble and screw our meager wages away. You must be a real tough bastard to stay here, Jack. However, a cursory look at the dedicatory plaque near the entrance revealed that the hotel was younger than I was, and had a closer connection to Holiday Inn Express than it did to the rustic history of America's last frontier. Parker and I sat down with our bags next to the fireplace, while Dean dealt with all of the paperwork nonsense at the front desk. It was nice by the fire. Parker and I both felt that vague combination of sickness and fatigue that seems to always accompany long travels. It was a relief to be sitting down. Even after sitting down all day, there is something to be said for sitting in a chair that is stationary and not hurtling through the sky or on the road. I'm not sure what it is, but sitting in a chair in an airplane or automobile is somehow very taxing on the body. My guess is that it has something to do with your inner ear. It must subconsciously record the amount of miles you've traveled and try to suggest to your unmoving body that you should be exhausted from all that traveling. I don't know. That's my best guess, though. I'm not a doctor or anything. Dean got into some kind of tiff with the hotel clerk. It wasn't anything bad, but the poor kid behind the desk got all stiff and wide-eyed, and Dean kept slapping his palm on the counter like the rude and impatient man he is. Parker and I kind of watched the interaction out of the corner of our eyes, and when it was finished, Parker looked at me with his eyebrows raised as if to say, Dean is kind of crazy, isn't he? Sorry, fellas. Dean said as he approached the fireplace. Looks like you'll be bunking together tonight. I, 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 I thought I had us all in three separate rooms, but I, I don't know. I, I hope you don't mind. I, I'm so sorry. I, I'm sorry. Parker and I shrugged and shook our heads. We didn't care. We were going to be spending the next couple weeks in the Alaskan wilderness, sleeping in negative 10 degree weather. I think we could share a hotel room. But for some reason this error, whether a clerical mistake made by the hotel or a blunder made by Dean himself, really affected Dean. He couldn't stop apologizing about it for some reason. It made me feel awkward. I could tell Parker was a little uneasy about it too. There was some kind of desperation in Dean's apologetics, like he was a nervous mother trying to keep her dysfunctional family happy or something. I got the feeling then that Dean needed everything on the trip to be perfect. It was a sad realization. I understood then that I would be carrying a heavy burden throughout the next two weeks. I would essentially have to be on my tippy toes the rest of the hunt, 
nervously awaiting any kind of slip-up in the itinerary and then working to defuse Dean's anger or despair resulting from said slip-up. I would be forced to play the role of the dutiful and optimistic friend who saw the bright side of everything. I would have to be the emotional ballast of the group. It wasn't a role I really felt like playing. I just wanted to pretend to be Rambo and have some kind of hyper-masculine fun. But I was beginning to realize that this trip held a kind of grave importance to Dean, like it was the cure to something, like it was the antidote to some deep and complex pain inside of him. As we grabbed our stuff and boarded the elevator, Dean wouldn't shut up about the room mix-up. Parker eventually told him, in as polite a way as possible, to shut the hell up about the rooms. Dean calmed down a little after that. When we got to our designated floor, Dean said, y- You guys go freshen up or whatever. Let's, let's meet down at the bar in like, oh, 15 or so, yeah? Parker and I nodded and we went our separate ways. I guess Dean's room was at the very end of our floor and was one of those presidential suites where mafiosos and drug lords and Instagram playboys tend to stay. It had a jacuzzi and a full bar and a 75-inch flat-screen TV with a full-length balcony. I never really got to see it, but Dean made a point of describing it to us in all its opulent detail. Yet, I thought there was a profound sorrow in the fact that Dean Landry stayed in that palatial suite all by himself, a kind of darkness hard to fully describe or understand. But imagining that sad man sitting alone in that empty suite made for parties and festive gatherings and high rollers with bikinied women orbiting around them made me feel hollow. The emptiness in that suite must have been almost suffocating. Every motion and action Dean performed must have made a depressing echo, and with only the dreary expanse of Anchorage's quasi-city as his view, I can't imagine a bleaker image. No, I was happy with our little room. Our hotel room was what you could imagine. I don't think I need to describe it beyond what it was. Generic. Two queen beds, a TV, etc., etc. When we got in, Parker immediately went for the shower. He said something about how airlines make him feel sticky, and I heard the shower come screeching to life a couple seconds later. I laid on my bed and flipped through the TV. A part of me was still slightly disturbed by Dean's little outburst and unsettling amount of apologizing. So I needed some good, brain-melting commercial entertainment to wipe my mind clean of any deep emotional thought. Ten minutes later, Parker was ready to go, and all memory of Dean's unusual behavior was erased by the brutal stupidity of a hospital drama. Sometimes, bad TV is more inebriating than alcohol. Dean was already at the bar when we got down there. Country music was playing, which I thought was odd. Alaska doesn't really possess any of the typical country music iconography, like plowing fields of crops, working with large amounts of cattle and livestock, going to rodeos, and loving on women who wear short shorts and cowboy boots. I guess country music is kind of employed as a universal symbol of American ruggedness and independence. So even though we were sitting about half a world away from Nashville and the sultry weather of the American South, we were still subject to hear everything from Willie Nelson to Jason Aldean. Meanwhile, snow started to flicker and dance outside the bar's frosted windows. Flakes were lit up blue and red by the neon beer signs hanging in the windows. Dean was already nursing some kind of malt scotch when we arrived, and he insisted that we order the same thing. When we all got our drinks, Dean ushered us from the bar to a table in the corner. I think this was done in the name of privacy and seclusion, but other than a very elderly couple, who were so still and silent they appeared almost mannequin-like, we were the only patrons in the bar. Again, something in Dean's behavior was hoisting up all kinds of serious red flags, but I couldn't quite get a handle on it. 
Everything Dean did that night felt abbreviated and rushed, like he had an internalized checklist that he needed to complete, and Parker and I were simply along for the ride. I started to feel like a spectator, like a supporting character in Dean's personal movie. He sat and talked at us for what felt like an hour, and then stood up, raising his half-drunk glass of scotch in his shaky hand. The caramel-colored liquor vibrated in his glass. Let's, let's have a toast, Dean said. I think we need a toast. Yeah? Parker and I nodded and raised our respective drinks, which, for some reason, we hadn't really touched. To, to a good hunt, Dean said. To a good hunt and to a fun, ah, uh, a fun time out in the bush. Thank you guys for coming out here with me. Thank you for, for, for coming. It, it means, well, it means a lot to me, and I, ah, uh, ah. Uh. There was a silence. And then Dean's face melted from a smile to a serious frown. His bottom lip started to quiver. Tears came next. Parker averted his eyes and looked at the ground. He felt the same kind of embarrassment that I felt. The same kind of embarrassment all men feel around such vulnerability. But I tried to keep my eyes locked on Dean as he cried. I don't know why. Maybe it was a kind of expression of solidarity or fraternity. I don't know. Dean tried to say something else, but his voice was all choked and broken, and snot started to drip onto his lips. He took a deep breath, wiped his face, and sat back down at the table. We all forgot to take a drink. Traditionally, not drinking after a toast is bad luck. There was a terrible silence after that. It was one of those moments that a quick joke or kind word or abrupt change of subject can't reconcile or salvage. We were all stuck in that moment of unexpected misery together. I looked out the window and noticed the snow had stopped falling. The windows were perfect rectangles of darkness. The elderly couple had left. Their half-drunk martinis were still sitting on their table, and the liquid in them looked milky and stale. They left their chairs all skiwampus and backed away from their table, and it looked like two ghosts had replaced the couple. Like the elderly couple had died, and their rigor mortis corpses were whisked away but their souls had remained at the table. I imagined the spirits looking out of the corner of their eyes at us living men and shaking their heads in pity. Are you okay, Dean? I asked. Dean raised and lowered his shoulders in a long and exaggerated shrug and then said, Ah, uh, no, no, I, I don't think so. Parker muttered something about calling his kids and left the bar. It was about one in the morning by then. He wasn't calling anyone, especially his kids. He was trying to escape, and I couldn't blame him. Dean and I sat alone in silence for a while. You know men outnumber women ten to one in Alaska? Dean asked. Uh, no, I didn't know that, I said. What? Why, why do you think that is? Dean asked. I, I don't know, I said, scratching out my forearm. It's a... Pretty rough place up here, maybe that's why. I, I think it's because a man can pretend up here. A man can pretend that he still needs to work to survive. He can pretend that he still needs to fight against the elements. He can pretend that he is vital, that he is fighting for something. I nodded. We were silent for a long time again. The bartender started wiping down tables and flipping chairs, the universal way of symbolically telling patrons, get the hell out, we're closed. But neither Dean nor I seemed to care, or really even notice. They could have shut the lights out and turned off the heat, and we would have probably sat there freezing quietly, unmoving. It was just one of those moments, you know?
What's, what's wrong, Dean? I asked. What are you thinking about? Dean shook his head. I can't find the words to, to say it, I guess, Dean said. Maybe, maybe one day I'll find all the words, but right now I think, I think we better head to bed. Even after suggesting we hit the hay, Dean and I sat at the table for another twenty minutes, at least. Both of us silent. Both of us still. Then Dean finally stood and without saying a word, left the bar and headed towards the elevators, leaving me alone with the young bartender. Just before I left the bar, in an awkward attempt at conversation, I asked the bartender how cold it would be the following day. Well, where are you from? The bartender asked, sweeping near the bar counter. Sorry, I asked. Well, if I know where you're from, I can tell you how cold it's going to be. See, if you're from, say, Minnesota, I tell you it's going to be pretty damn cold. But if you're from, like, Arizona, I tell you to stay inside and turn the heat all the way up and wrap yourself in some blankets. I'm from California, I said, standing up from my table and finishing off my drink. Which part? The bartender asked. The warm part, I said. The bartender smiled and shook his head and kept on sweeping with a big, dopey grin on his face. The next morning was just ridiculously cold. I could feel it before I got out of bed. It crawled in under the sheets and started to spoon me. It woke me up with its frigid fingers. Parker was already up and brewing coffee. His eyes had little red rings around them. Some kind of sports news program was blaring on the television. Some linebacker had gotten into a car accident, and like farmers quibbling about an injured prized bull, the news anchors were arguing over whether his injuries would be enough to keep him from ever playing again, as though that was all that mattered, that that was where his only worth could be derived from. They showed a photo of his face. He looked young and handsome, and his career was already over. It took everything I had in me to get out of bed. Parker asked if I wanted any coffee. Uh, no, I said. No thanks. You don't drink coffee? He asked. Uh, it makes my throat hurt, I said. I don't know what it is, but the acidity or something makes me feel like I have a sore throat. It's like a fake cold or something. Parker shrugged and returned to his business, which was essentially throwing as many layers of clothing as he could onto his body. Ten minutes later, we were outside. Dean was already there on the curb of the hotel, waiting for our guide. He looked manic, kind of wired. His eyes were wide and he was staring intensely at nothing. I made the rookie mistake of walking outside with wet hair. It froze solid pretty quickly. I ran my fingers through it and came away with thick flakes of ice in my fingers. That sucked. I just cannot describe to you how unearthly the cold was up there in Alaska. Standing out on the curb that morning, waiting for our guide, I felt like I was getting French kissed by Jack Frost while Old Man Winter was fondling my breasts. It was a kind of violating cold, a kind of cold that felt illegal. It was a cold that was almost transdermic, seeping through your many layers of warm clothing and into your skin, tickling your bone marrow with its icy electricity. Within minutes of being out there, we were all shivering, violently. Aren't we a little early? I asked, looking at my watch. He'll be here any minute now, Dean said, looking into the distance as though he could see Dean's jeep coming over the horizon. It was overcast and dark that morning, and one sincere question kept popping in my head. What am I doing here? For a moment, I thought about subtly walking backwards until the automatic doors of the hotel scooped me up into their warmth, 
leaving my friends to face the cold alone. But thankfully, I didn't have long to ruminate over that plan. Otherwise, I might have actually executed it. Henriksen arrived right on time. We all piled into his jeep like G.I.s jumping on the last chopper out of Saigon. Falling into the leather interior of his car was like collapsing into a warm bath. Our muscles could finally relax. But even with the warm air thundering from the jeep's AC vents, the car couldn't keep out the cold entirely. Frost clung to the corners of the windows, and the leather seats were hard and icy. These were little hints, little pieces of evidence left by nature, telling us that she could not be escaped or ignored. We were quiet for most of the car ride. Dean may be asked a couple of dumb touristy questions like, Is it always this cold? And how do people survive the winters up here? But other than that, we were silent until we came to the airstrip. Wait, I said as the jeep came to a stop at the end of a little rinky-dink airfield. We're flying again? Why are we flying again? Henriksen nodded. You wanted to hunt grizzlies, didn't you? I thought bears were all over Alaska, I said, even on the coast. There are bears on the coast, Henriksen said. But those aren't grizzlies. Those are brown bears. Well, what's the difference between a brown bear and a grizzly? I thought they were the same. Brown bears live on the coast, and grizzlies live inland. That's the difference. And we're here to hunt grizzlies. Parker and Dean started grabbing their things and hopping out of the warm womb of the Jeep Cherokee while I stayed put and looked out the windshield at the ancient bush plane that was supposed to take us somewhere deeper, darker, and colder than where we already were. The old engines on the plane coughed to life and the blades started to rotate and turn into a loud blur. I'm not sure how the extreme cold affects avionics and airplane mechanics, but something about seeing that prehistoric prop plane struggling to come to life made me really nervous. Hey Dean, I said as I jumped out of the jeep. Remind me why we're doing this again? About a half an hour later, we were in midair, bouncing around in the windy and turbulent skies, zooming a few thousand feet above the blotchy and rough Alaskan terrain. There were wide blotches of dark green pines, followed by shiny blotches of snowy plains, followed by rocky cliffsides and mountainous regions. And all I could hear was the vicious roar of the plane engines. I looked around inside the plane and saw Dean almost leaning over the pilot's shoulders, trying to get a good look at the dreary Alaskan sky, while Parker was holding his head between his knees, trying his best not to throw up all over the broom-closet-sized aircraft. I sat in silent amazement at the fact that such a little, stout refrigerator of an airplane could actually get airborne. There was nothing really aerodynamic about the bulky plane we were flying inside of. Everything was square and rigid and about as unstreamlined as you could imagine. I was convinced that the plane wasn't actually flying, but rather beating the air into submission with its massive engines, climbing to high altitude by sheer force of will. That plane was so loud it thumped your chest like amplifiers at a rock concert. By the time the plane was beginning to land, I think I had suffered some permanent hearing damage. When we arrived over our planned hunting destination, the airplane engine quieted a little and dropped down in pitch a couple octaves. I could feel the nose of the plane move downward and start a not-so-subtle descent towards the Alaskan wilderness. My stomach flipped around the way it does on roller coasters, and Parker, bless his soul, could no longer hold back the vomit that had been fighting for an exit the entire flight. He emptied his stomach into his wool beanie and then held it out in front of him like a beggar asking for some change. One of the pilots looked back at Parker and shook his head. You couldn't hold it until we landed, Henriksen asked, a crooked smile on his face. 
Parker said nothing, only glared over at Henriksen with his pale green-colored face. Some small chunks of vomit were still caked around the corners of his mouth. He was the perfect picture of misery. Dean didn't notice. He didn't care. He was laser-focused on what was happening in the cockpit. The pilots were poking things and pulling things, and we started to come closer and closer to the earth. Trees grew in size. Boulders did, too. Everything on the ground started to gain detail and depth. Looking out the window, I thought the landing was going to be smooth. The plane slowed down and pitched up as it neared the ground, coming parallel with a long, open patch of Alaskan wilderness. But when the wheels touched down, I just about bit my tongue off. The whole plane rattled and bucked and Henriksen, who wasn't buckled into his seatbelt, came up out of his chair, only saving himself from falling by grabbing Dean's shoulder. Once the plane came to a stop, he sheepishly sat back in his seat, a clever smile on his face, as though his little bungle had been a routine, an act. All right, Henriksen said, getting up from his chair. Let's go. The brutal engines on the airplane never shut off. The pilots waited for us to gather our gear and get situated, and then they bounced and bumped their way back into the heavens. I shuddered as I watched the fat little thing take off. It was an astonishing sight. It was like watching a cinder block cut through the ocean. It defied all laws of physical mechanics, and I couldn't believe that I had just been side of its cramped little belly. Two minutes later, and we were left standing alone in the Alaskan wilderness, the quiet droning of the airplane whispering goodbye in the far distance. All tethers to the outside world were severed. We were standing alone in a frozen valley with nothing but wild ruggedness surrounding us for miles. And our goal, our mission, was to get into close proximity with giant animals that can run as fast as an automobile, weigh as much as two adult silverback gorillas, and have claws that could rival a velociraptor's. We kind of just stood around and looked at things for a minute while Henriksen was poring over some maps. There was a cutting wind that came off the nearby mountains that got us shivering almost immediately. On the plane ride, I was determined, excited even, to take down a bear. But once my hands started to burn from the cold, all hope of killing a bear left my mind. I wasn't really interested anymore. From that moment on, I made it my goal to just make it through the next two weeks alive. As we waited for Henriksen to come up with our heading, it became apparent that Parker still didn't know what to do with his beanie full of vomit. He was still holding it out in front of him like it was a gift for someone special, like he had to keep it safe. Finally, Dean said something. Damn it, Parker, he said. Just just throw it on the ground. Is, is that okay? Parker asked. What about, like, leaving no trace? Just give it to me, Dean said, carefully snatching the puke-filled beanie from Parker like it was a bag of dog doo-doo. Here, this is what we'll do. Dean bent over and kicked a little impression into the hard snow and gently placed the vomit beanie in the divot as though it were an offering of some kind. Then, taking some fresh snow, he covered the beanie up like it was a little organic time capsule. There, like it never even existed. Now, clean up your mouth, please, would ya? Parker self-consciously wiped his mouth with the back of his glove. Some crusty flakes of vomit cracked off his cheeks and fell to the snow. Okay, Henriksen said, folding the maps back into his pack. Let's get moving. We have a ways to go before we can make camp for the night. How far? I asked. Henriksen pulled a stick of jerky from his pack and bit down on it, keeping his eyes trained on the mountains in the distance. Then, he looked at me and smiled. Far enough.
The next few days could be categorized by using two or three words, and those words would be grueling, boring, and cold. Whatever wildlife existed on that frozen edge of the world kept itself hidden from our eyes. It almost felt unnatural. Here I thought we'd be practically bumping into cougars and deer and bull moose, but there was nothing really in the way of wild animals. We didn't see a single bird of prey or fox or owl, let alone a grizzly bear. And every day consisted of hiking, tasteless meals, and more hiking. We'd wake up in the morning, and Henriksen would point across a vast valley floor or up to a spiny ridgeline and say something like, We should be on the other side of that by noon. But it wasn't all bad. The nights were something to look forward to. There were ample amounts of whiskey, vodka, and other hard liquors that do well to warm your body and numb your mind, a relaxing combination that became pretty essential after long days of hiking around in the bush. Henriksen called his whiskey the pharmaceutical of the wild, and I began to see why. Each night we'd pull out a bottle and pass it around the fire, and Henriksen would tell us a story about some scary altercation he had with a pack of wolves or a mama bear or a bull moose. There was something so primal and gratifying about sitting around a fire and listening to stories of adventure and danger. It appealed to almost every primitive instinct a man has. The good nights almost made up for the bad days. Almost. Dean began the week with wide, meth-head-looking eyes. He was seriously keyed up. Sometimes it made me wonder if it was a good idea to let a guy like that have a high-powered rifle. I didn't know what kind of weird baloney was bouncing around inside his head. You never want to think those kinds of things about your friends, but once they're walking around with you in the middle of nowhere holding deadly weapons, you start analyzing their character in a very profound way. You start searching for any signs of mental health deficiencies or possible signals of an imminent, full-scale crack-up. And Dean was sending out some serious red flags. The first few mornings, he woke up before everyone else and started brewing coffee. At first, I thought this was a kind gesture, but I soon realized that this habit was less altruistic than I thought. The early morning was the only time Dean could have some alone time, something which I guess he desperately needed to stay somewhat sane. Sometimes I would wake up and hear him walking around outside my tent, kind of muttering to himself. I could tell he was angry about something. I could hear it in his voice. During the day, he spoke little, but you could tell he was on the edge of something. Like he had ascribed some serious meaning to this hunt. Like his whole life was rioting on whether or not he could kill a bear. It made me nervous. I started to watch out for him like you would a troublemaking teen making sure he wasn't up to anything that might hurt him or others. By the fifth day of seeing no grizzlies, Dean started going full Captain Ahab. He started to verbally abuse Hendrickson to the point that I thought they might get into a physical altercation. He was saying things like, You're not a real hunter, are you, shithead? And, Hey, dumbass, do you know how much I'm paying you? I better see a bear in the next hour or it'll be your head, buddy. And, why don't you do us all a favor and break a leg so we can move on without you? Luckily, Henriksen had a very, very long fuse. Otherwise, he might have thrown Dean off a mountainside and laughed as his body ragdolled over the jagged rocks that lay below. By the end of the sixth day, when we were all settling in to make camp, Dean really started to lose it. We found a pretty nice camping spot. I'd say the best one of the trip. It was nestled on the edge of a small cliff, overlooking a valley below and the mountains beyond. 
We found some protection within a small crowd of pine trees and began to set up camp, clearing some snow and assembling our tents without saying much at all. Parker had developed a cough and took a break from tent making every now and again, breaking the eerie silence of the wild with his mucousy, baritone coughing. Beyond Parker's respiratory struggles and the low hum of the mountain wind, there were only the clappy, metallic sounds of tent poles being snapped together and the high-pitched, fabric-y sounds of those same poles being run through the synthetic cloth sleeves of the tents. By that sixth night, we had perfected the art of constructing a tent. The first few nights of tent building had been difficult, especially when working in freezing conditions with nothing but the flat, gray light of twilight there to help you see. It was a struggle finding the little flaps and rods and rings that needed to be zipped or penetrated or battened down. But by the sixth night, we were old pros, able to throw together our tiny base camp with little effort. While Parker, Hendrickson, and I were snapping together the little skeletons for our fabric houses, Dean sat crouched over a small, rudimentary fire he had built with some kindling and twigs. It was a lousy little thing that produced more smoke than light or warmth, but Dean was hunched close to it, his eyes staring deep into its small flames. Hey, Dean, Henriksen said, put some more wood on there. It'll go out soon. Dean remained still. He didn't nod in acknowledgement or even look in Henriksen's direction. I don't think Dean was ignoring Henriksen or deliberately trying to provoke him. I just think he was so far into his own little world that he couldn't even hear Henriksen's remark. He remained crouched and still. Something had finally broken inside of him. Something that had been pulled and twisted and gnawed at for years. Something that would take a lifetime or longer to properly heal. Once all of our tents were made, I took the liberty of building Dean's tent while he remained next to the fire. We brought some more wood to the almost dead fire and revived it, making it a strong and hearty flame that spread warmth and light across our little campground. We all sat down around the fire, our faces towards the flames and our backs out towards the dark and terrible Alaskan wilderness. Our shadows flickered on the skinny trunks of the pines and the fabric of our tents. Dean didn't move didn't say a word. We broke out some MREs and some whiskey and started my favorite part of the night, eating and drinking. We passed the bottle around, and when it reached Dean, he took the bottle and looked it over in his hands, slowly running his thumbs along its brand label, as if it were some kind of ancient artifact. And then, without drinking, he tossed the bottle back to Parker, returning his gaze to the fire and saying nothing. You doing okay, Dean? Parker asked taking a swig from the bottle. You've been pretty quiet all night. Dean closed his eyes and exhaled slowly. Yeah, I said, nudging Dean's shoulder. What's up with you? The wind suddenly picked up then, rushing through the trees with a loud woof. It was like someone had opened the door to the Arctic's refrigerator. The fire roared as if under the influence of a smithy's bellows, growing tall and hot and throwing hot ash back at our faces. Parker, Hendrickson, and I practically dove away from the fire, shielding our faces from the scalding debris. But Dean stayed still, holding his hands out towards the growing flame. A hot ember caught in his wool beanie and smoke started to rise from his head. Dean, I said, smacking the ember off his head. What are you thinking? For the first time that night, he seemed to understand that someone was speaking to him. He turned his head towards me and looked at me in my eyes, and in my eyes only. His poor face was gaunt and pale.
What's the matter, Dean? I asked. You can tell me. Without a word, Dean stood up and stepped towards his tent like an anesthetized psych patient. His shoulders were stooped and his jaw hung open. He looked like a zombie or a drug addict you might see wandering in a back alley somewhere. He looked awful. Night, Dean, Parker said. But Dean was already gone, zipping up his tent flap behind him. Is he, uh, gonna be all right? Henriksen asked Parker and I. We both kind of shrugged our shoulders and looked vaguely at the spot in front of the fire where Dean had been crouching. I, I don't know, I said. I, I don't know. The next morning, Henriksen unzipped my tent and told me to get up. He sounded angry. Judging by the meager amount of light filtering through my tent, I knew I hadn't overslept, so I wasn't exactly sure what Henriksen was so excited about. I threw on some layers and my boots and braved the cold morning air. Henriksen was frowning across the campsite next to Dean's tent. His arms were folded, and he was shaking his head. What is it? I asked. Look, Henriksen said, pointing to Dean's tent. Dean is gone. My heart sank. I knew immediately that something was very, very wrong. The kind of wrong that makes you rethink all of your past decisions, that makes you wish you could go back in time. I refused to entertain any dark reasons for Dean's absence. Like any person falling into a bad situation, I started out of the gate with a good helping of denial. Maybe he just, uh, maybe he just went pee, I said, knowing that that was a foolishly optimistic explanation for his disappearance. No, Parker said, clomping into camp from the trees, his rifle slung on his back. His eyes looked exhausted. He'd been up for a long time. I've been over every square inch of snow within a mile of our camp. He's nowhere close. How long has he been gone? I asked. Hard to say, Henriksen replied. I'd guess he left shortly after we fell asleep. He took his rifle and a fair amount of our food. He probably has a six-hour head start on us at least. I was sick to my stomach. Terrible possibilities started to seep into my mind. I knew that while in a mental state like the one Dean was trapped in, anything was possible, especially things that involved impulsive, erratic, and even dangerous behavior. I started thinking about what I would tell his wife, what her face would do when she heard the news. I ran my palms down my cheeks and then brought them together, as though in prayer, right under my nose. I could feel my heart starting to run out of control. I could feel my hot breath accelerating as it ran down my fingertips. So, so where is he? I asked, getting the stupid questions out of the way first. Henriksen shrugged. You tell me. Are, are, there, are there footsteps in the snow? I asked. There are some, Parker said, but they kind of lead in, in all directions. They, they fade away, too. I don't, uh, I don't know what to do. I'll tell you what we're going to do, Henriksen said, throwing on his pack and slinging his rifle on his shoulder. I'm going to go find this stupid son of a bitch, and you guys are going to stay put here. Understand? Parker and I stood dumbfounded. None of us were really in a place to argue. Henriksen was the resident expert. Disagreeing with him would be like a cancer patient disagreeing with his oncologist. It became immediately apparent that Parker and I were at the mercy of Henriksen's command. We watched in silence as Henriksen put on his gloves and hat, tugging them on with quick, angry motions. He was beyond pissed. 
His face was all red and his brow was furrowed, creating deep wrinkles on the bridge of his nose. Okay, Henriksen said, procuring something from his breast pocket. This is my satellite phone. I'm going to leave it with you. He handed me a thick, plastic rectangle, something that looked like an old cell phone from the 90s. If I'm not back here with Dean by 7 p.m., call for help. They should be able to triangulate our position. But if not, I wrote our coordinates down. Henriksen pulled out a wrinkled piece of paper and handed it to Parker. It had a bunch of numbers and degree symbols scribbled across it. Seven o'clock. Understand? I understand, I said, nodding and looking at the satellite phone. But what if... What if you come back with Dean, only he's, he's, ah, he's dead? That's a bridge I really don't want to cross until I get there, Henriksen said. You don't think he'd do something stupid, do you? That's exactly what I think he'd do, I said. That's the most likely thing Dean could do, is something stupid. Parker nodded. Yeah, that's like his, his M.O., Awesome, Henriksen said, moving towards the edge of camp. I really need to start screening people before I take them out here. Background checks, mental health analyses, the works. He chuckled in a sad kind of way and then stepped out into the woods. Stay put now. His body disappeared behind the pines and a few moments later, any evidence of Henriksen was completely gone, lost to the wild, just like Dean. By my estimation, Henriksen got the easy job. At least he was doing something. Meanwhile, Parker and I were given the agonizing, helpless task of sitting, waiting, and worrying. Hours passed by in that roller coaster way they do when you're anxiously awaiting serious news, in quick spurts of almost euphoric optimism, followed by long bouts of almost catatonic dread. We spoke little while we waited. Parker sunk most of his anxiety into the fire, making sure it was kept alive and healthy stoking it every 30 seconds or so. I was tempted to start drinking then, but thought better of it. I thought that I might need to act and think quickly in the hours that followed, that I might have to play a role of importance in some sad scenario where both Dean and Henriksen were lost. So, I left the whiskey untouched. I needed to be sharp. I followed the path of the sun as it burned its way across the sky, making a low arc around the valley floor. It was nothing more than a bright little disk in a sea of low-lying clouds. It had little power at such a high latitude. It made me sad to see such a bright and happy symbol brought to a low and ineffectual status. I decided then and there that the land we were in was cursed and that no one should ever inhabit or come near it. It made me angry. It made me furious. I screamed at the land, and then I fell to my knees and wept. Parker said nothing, made no move to comfort or console me. He simply worked to keep his little fire alive. He had his own troubles to attend to. He had his own ways of coping. By 4.30pm, the sun was practically gone. It had pretty much completed its lousy little lap across the sky and was calling it quits for the day, seemingly throwing in the towel early. By then I was exhausted from tension and stress, lying on the frosty ground beside the fire trying to will Dean and Henriksen into existence. I was hoping that if I thought about it hard enough, I could make them both materialize at the edge of the tree line. This method wasn't really working. Parker, on the other hand, was in remarkably good spirits, 
working hard at keeping the fire going. He was engaged, consumed with his work. Every few minutes he'd stand up and march to the edge of camp to snag a few fallen twigs or branches and return to the fire with arms full of firewood. You see, Parker had given himself a simple but powerful directive. Keep the fire alive. And this task was keeping him stable, keeping him sane. Thus we can see the beneficial power distraction can have on man's mind. I, however, was not so easily distracted and was, slowly but surely, falling into madness. By 5 p.m., it was pretty dark, and I was fiddling with the satellite phone, running my fingers over it, ready to make the devastating but necessary phone call. Parker was sitting cross-legged in front of the fire. A placid look hung on his face, but the light of the flames betrayed his calm demeanor, for they revealed the stark raving lunacy that was flickering in his eyes. We were both on the edge, on the precipice. Just then, just as we were about to fall into some place more terrible than where we already were, there was a sound in the trees. A beautiful, wonderful sound that made both Parker and I stand at attention and chuckle in childish excitement. It was the sound of footsteps, of people walking towards camp. Parker and I looked at each other, tears were welling in our eyes, and we couldn't stop giggling like a couple of drunken idiots. What had we been so worried about? Why were we acting so crazy? Dean had been safe all along. We were simply overreacting. How could we have been so worked up? A lovely, relieving combination of emotions washed over us like morphine from an IV drip. Everything was going to be okay. But as the footsteps drew nearer, the sound of snow crunching underfoot becoming increasingly audible, I thought it was weird that no one was talking. There were no voices coming from these footsteps. Maybe Henriksen was so mad at Dean, he couldn't even speak to him. Yeah, maybe that was it. But the footsteps sounded a little odd. They were slower and deeper than what a normal man's would sound like. So I called out to them. I couldn't wait any longer. Dean! I called out. My voice sounded so shaky and nervous. Henriksen? Is that you? The sound of footsteps stopped. Whoever was moving out there wasn't moving anymore. It was now too dark to see anything through the trees. I had no idea what was going on. This made me angry. Were they really playing a joke on us right now? After we waited in mind-melting terror for them to return all day? That was bullshit. Hey! Hey! I called out. Stop messing around! Do you know how worried we've been? The footsteps started up again this time faster than before. It sounded like they were accelerating too, pounding the ground in a heavy, swift rhythm. As the footsteps drew nearer to the camp, I could begin to make out a silhouette. It wasn't what I was expecting. There was one big mass moving towards the camp. It looked about the size of an industrial dumpster, and it was barreling through the trees at an unthinkable speed, shaking the earth each time its feet hit the ground. All I had time to say was, it's not them. And then the thing burst through the trees and into our camp. Once it breached the perimeter of our campsite, it brought itself back on its hind legs and roared. He was trying to scare us, trying to show off his tremendous size. The bear was healthy and strong, easily 700 pounds and probably close to 7 feet tall on its hind legs. When he brought his front paws back to the earth, The ground quaked, 
and some sticks in the campfire quivered and fell off each other, sending embers into the air. Parker and I were statues. We had been taught the power of this animal. We knew that whatever we tried to do, whether it be run or hide or play dead, would essentially spell death for us. There was no beating a grizzly bear. If it chose to kill you, then you were left with only two options, dying quickly or dying slowly, and you had to pray the bear chose the former way of doing business. You couldn't scare it off, outrun it, or even kill it with anything less than a high-powered rifle. Bear spray and small-caliber firearms would only provoke it, antagonize it, urge it to kill you faster. Parker and I knew this. We knew we were facing death straight in its furry, deceptively cute face. The bear started to creep around the camp, trotting up to each tent and sniffing it up and down like a dog might, bringing its nose up and down with quick, rapid-fire jerks of the head. It would only be a matter of time before it grew tired of our tents and backpacks and moved on to the two meat-filled men standing by the fire. Parker, I whispered. He didn't respond. I shuffled closer to him. Parker, I whispered again. What? He responded. His voice was barely audible. It was quaky and filled with horror. Where's your rifle? I asked. Not, not close. Do you have a sidearm? No. Do you? No. Where's your rifle? Parker asked. By my tent, I whispered. He's standing on top of it right now. What do we do? Parker asked. I... I don't know. I whispered. I, I don't know. The tears in our eyes, which only moments before had been produced by joy, were now being overcome by tears of fear. Parker, may God bless him, wet his trousers. There was nothing we could do. If we ran for our guns, there was no foreseeable way that we could make it in time. The bear would no doubt bear down on us and tear our bodies limb from limb before we could even get a shot off. The only thing we could do was what we had already been doing all day. Wait in terrible agony. We couldn't act out our fate. We had to let our fate happen to us. The grizzly bear behaved exactly as I feared it would. By degrees, it became bored with the tents and the meager food that was available in our backpacks. After tearing our packs open with its massive paws and rifling through our clothes and tents with its football-sized nose, the novelty of these things wore off, and the bear brought its attention to the two terrified men watching it from across the campfire. Its dark eyes glimmered in the firelight, expressionless, and just like all things in nature, indifferent to the fears of man. It approached us slowly, stopping just on the other side of the fire. We were within reach of its paws. All it had to do was reach out above the flames and end our lives with a quick swat of its arm. I started to shiver from fear. Parker started to audibly sob 
His head shook with each one of his staccato exhales. I closed my eyes and started to pray. I wasn't sure who I was praying to exactly. I guess I was praying to God. I had never really prayed before. I was just waiting to hear, expecting to hear. A terrible roar, and then a rush of mass, and then feel teeth or claws digging into my skin. I was preparing to die in a most horrific fashion, going down with lots of my blood and viscera spread out on the snow. And then there was a noise. It didn't come from the bear, or Parker, or myself, but from beyond the trees, somewhere out in the darkness. I opened my eyes. The bear was no longer looking at us. Its head was cocked to the side, its ears perked up. The noise came again. It was the sound of a voice. I recognized it. It was Dean's voice. Louie! Dean shouted. Parker! Louie! We're back! We're back! We're okay! Dean's voice was raspy and broken. It sounded different, changed. It sounded as though he had aged. The bear, hearing this commotion, turned all the way around, stomping its feet in short little steps and shifting its weight towards the woods. It was looking for the source of the shouting. Louie! Louie! Dean shouted. Parker! Parker! Dean's voice was getting closer. How ironic, I thought. Dean couldn't find a bear to save his life, and now he was going to unsuspectingly walk right into one. The bear moved away from us and started to make for the tree line. Now this is where things get a little blurry. I remember telling Parker I was going for my rifle, but after that my reptilian brain kind of took over. Time slowed down and my reality went kind of soft and gooey, but I'll recount everything as best I can. As the bear moved closer to the edge of camp and the distance between us and death grew larger, I decided to risk it all. I wasn't trying to be a hero or anything like that. I was just trying to save my friends. Now not only were Parker and I in danger, but poor Dean and Henriksen were as well. They were fixing to walk in on a 700-pound problem that they hadn't bargained for. I had to take care of the bear. I had to save their lives before this thing ripped us all apart. In a kind of adrenaline-induced hysteria, similar to what I imagine a PCP rush would feel like, I jumped over the campfire and darted towards my rifle. The bear's back was towards me, his head sniffing the air, searching for Dean. By the time the big bastard noticed I was moving, it was too late for him. I racked my bolt action and put the butt of my rifle against my shoulder. The bear flipped around and postured to run, postured to attack, but before it could take a single step, I sent a bullet through its chest. A geyser of maroon erupted from its chest and then its legs turned to jello, wobbling and wiggling and then collapsing beneath the heavy bulk of its body. Its enormous body fell to the earth with a limp thud that vibrated my boots. Then, after it let out a long, labored sigh, the bear died. Seconds later, Dean and Henriksen walked within reach of the campfire's glow. They looked terrible. Dean more so than Henriksen. Before any words were spoken, before we even acknowledged that Dean and Henriksen had made it back safely, we, all four of us, gathered around the giant beast and admired its power and beauty. Even in death, the bear was something to behold.
A bright red pool of blood leaked out from its wet fur and shone brightly against the white snow. It was a grotesque and beautiful image. Grotesquely beautiful. Wow, Parker said. Wow. That's when Dean started crying and fell on me, hugging me tight. I'm sorry, he said. I'm so sorry for how I acted. I'm so sorry. He started to really cry. I'm talking heavy sobs. The kind that sound like an old car that won't turn over. I I got lost and I tried to find you guys, but I, I couldn't. I screamed for hours and hours and hours. I thought I was going to freeze to death. And I'm so sorry. I think Dean kept talking after that, or at least tried to, but his speech became too overcome with emotion to be understood. His words were indiscernible, hidden behind a goopy, mucusy mess of bitter weeping. But I didn't really need to know what he was saying. I didn't care. Dean was back, and he was safe. And that was what mattered. There was a long period of silence after that. None of us really spoke. I think we were grappling with the fact that we were no longer the same men we had been only a day ago. Those men could not be reclaimed or returned to. They were gone. The events of the day had changed us, irrevocably so. Once Dean settled down and stopped crying, Henriksen told us to start preparing dinner while he worked on field dressing the bear. Field dressing, for any of you who aren't aware, is basically the process by which you break an animal down into its most basic components, severing skin from muscles and muscles from bone. It can be a long, bloody process of careful evisceration, something us greenhorns weren't really jumping out of our seats to be a part of. But you might well imagine why, as Henriksen tore intestines and other vital organs from the bear, none of us really had an appetite. Instead of preparing a meal, we, Parker, Dean, and I, sat around the fire in perfect silence, listening to the sounds of Henriksen sawing through flesh and fur. I could see some kind of life had returned to Dean's eyes, some kind of metamorphosis had taken place within him since the night previous. He was present now. He was with us. His mind had returned from whatever dark crevice it had fallen into. We sat there for a long time. Dean didn't seem to want to talk about what happened, and I wasn't going to pester him. We could talk about those things later. Shortly thereafter, we grew tired, and all of us, but Henriksen, retired for the night. I laid down in my sleeping bag and stared up at the ceiling of my tent. Amber firelight danced all around the shiny fabric of my tent, bouncing shadows and shapes above my head. I fell asleep to the sounds of Henriksen butchering the bear. That night, I was woken up by the sound of my tent unzipping. It was like a long, drawn-out screech coming from out in the distance. I opened my eyes and sat up. The fire had gone out, and a thin layer of frost was collecting on top of my sleeping bag. My nose was tingling from the cold. The entrance to my tent flipped open, and a shadow crept inside. It was dimly outlined by the moon. It was Dean. Hey, hey, he whispered. Dean? I asked. What are you doing? You scared the hell out of me. I... I, I don't know how to put this. What is it, Dean? I, I, can, can I ask you a favor? What? When, when we get back, do you think, do you think you could tell, tell people I shot the bear? 
It, it would mean a lot to me if you did that. I, uh, I think it would be good for me. I think, I think it might be good for my marriage. It, it might be good if she, if she thought I killed the bear. I stared at Dean. I couldn't see his eyes in the darkness, but I knew they were filled with desperation. Terrible desperation. Yes, Dean, I said. We can tell everyone you killed the bear. Thank you for listening. That was Killing the Bear. This episode was written, edited, produced, and read by myself, with the music being by Kevin McLeod. Thanks again. Thanks again.